Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Professor Alison Walker from the university's Department of Physics looks at how organic devices work, how they mimic nature, and explains the novel applications that will change the future of our work and home life. For those who don't know me, I'm Kevin Edge. I'm Deputy Vice Chancellor here at the university, uh, and I've been invited to introduce Alison, uh, something which I'm really very pleased to do. So I'm going to start the proceedings with just a little bit uh, of a, an outline of Alison, her career, and her research interests. Alison Walker was born on the island of Borneo while her father worked there in the British Colonial Service. She came to the UK at the age of 10, and I've just had a brief exchange with her, and I said, I think that must have been a significant period of adjustment, <laughs> having spent 10 years in Borneo. She might wish to say something about that in a few moments. In 1974, uh, she started her studies in physics at Oxford University and gained her BA degree. She continued to work for a DPhil in theoretical condensed matter physics, which was awarded in 1981. In her DPhil research, Alison worked on magnetic systems and superionic conductors. She then worked on the physics of polymers at Michigan State University and on the simulation of metals at Daresbury, Daresbury Laboratory in the UK. After moving to the University of East Anglia in 1984, Alison started collaborations on devices. She had first encountered devices as an undergraduate student during a summer placement at the MOD at Malvern. Now she worked with John Jefferson at Kinetic on submicron inorganic semiconductor devices and with Donald Bradley at Sheffield on organic semiconductor devices. When the University of East Anglia decided to close its physics department in 1998, Bath was very pleased to provide a home for a group of physicists, including Alison. Here, she has formed highly productive partnership with Professor Laurie Peter and Dr. Petra Cameron in our Department of Chemistry, working on dye-sensitized solar cells. Two features of Alison's approach to research stand out from her CV. She works in collaboration with other scientists, and although a theoretician, she enjoys research projects that have applied targets and tangible end products. This is evident most recently in her three-year Royal Society Industrial Fellowship with the company Cambridge Display Technology and also in her current role as coordinator of an EU project which has 11 partner institutions in Europe, China, and the USA. So clearly she is engaged very much on the global, international scale. I'm sure we all look forward very much to hearing more about her research uh, on devices and the title is Devices and Desires, and I invite Alison to present her inaugural lecture. Well, 
Thank you very much, Kevin, for introducing me. And thank you very, very much, all of you who came, including those of you who are volcano refugees and perhaps hadn't intended to be here. Um, so I fortunately am not a volcano refugee. Uh, uh, the title uh, has several sources. The primary source is the Book of Common Prayer. But it was picked up by P.D. James, who wrote a detective novel called Devices and Desires, about which more later. Uh, Stephen Fry used Devices and Desires as a title of a blog that he wrote in which he indicated that he was passionate about digital devices. And so that really is the link with my talk. I, too, am occasionally passionate about digital devices. But I have to say, sometimes it's more the desires bit that I prefer. So, uh, as Kevin indicated, I had the immense good fortune to choose the right parents, very interesting parents, who uh, were in Borneo when myself and brother and sister were born. And we were... First of all, people keep saying to me, well, where's Borneo? They often say to me, where's Bath, actually. Um, but <laughs> with slightly more justification, they, uh, they ask me where Borneo is. Borneo is very close to the equator, and it's about approximately the other side of the world. In Denmark, they have a saying, the land where the pepper comes from, as a very, very remote part of the world. Well, Borneo is the land where the pepper comes from. It actually exports pepper. So uh, we and some friends of mine, and if you wish to find out about Borneo, my brother and sister are here, and some friends who, who were also uh, in Borneo. We were, I w was born with my sister in a remote place called Miri, and Miri in 1955 was a one-horse town, only the horse didn't visit very often. So it really was a, a tiny uh, place. Um, my parents uh, had a lot of fun there, and in particular, they spoke Malay because they interacted a lot with the local people. And Julian's and my first language was Malay. Uh, however, I will give this talk in English. <laughs> so uh, I had a slightly circuitous route to, to Bath. I went to an independent girls' school in Ashford. And it, Evelyn Waugh famously said in Decline of Hall that anyone who's been to public school feels comparatively at home in prison. So, so this was a very good, very, very good training for, for future life. Not that I should say I've ever been to prison, but if you can cope with public school, you can cope with anything. And certainly I can vouch for that. And come Gillian, my sister. Now, okay, so this was an all-girls uh, public school. I was then fortunate enough to be awarded an engineering uh, scholarship by the Ministry of Defence and as a trainee engineer. Uh, so I went to Farnborough in Kent to learn how to use a lathe and various other things. And in particular, I, so I went from an all-girls environment to an all-male environment. What I learned about men is that they can talk about anything, whether they know about it or not. <laughs> now, I've rapidly picked up this skill to the extent I still use it when I'm writing grant proposals. Um, so so I, I, I had tremendous uh, fun at Farnborough, even built my own wireless tuner, which my dad used for many years. And then, after spending uh, nearly a year there, 
I went up to, to Oxford. I was uh, encouraged to think about doing research by Julia Yeomans, who is at, uh, a professor at Oxford now. And uh, my tutor, who is from Wilson College, Brian Buck. And so within 24 hours of getting my degree, I was decided to switch from being a, an engineer to being a, a research physicist. And uh, I was um, taken on by um, Gillian Goering, and she probably still regrets it, but uh, you have to ask Gillian about it. Um, but I used to plague her, her life. Um, but we had, again, had a lot of fun in the Department of Theoretical Physics in Oxford doing research in magnetic systems, and then in the superionic conductors, which I did with Mike Gillen, who was at Harwell, when Harwell was a very renowned center for research. And one of the things that Harwell did, was very good at, was computer simulation, which in those days was in its infancy. And uh, you have to remember those days, for those of you, the younger members of the audience, is a period when life in Mars is set. Okay, it's that long ago. And I find that really scary, but it's a fact. Okay, so uh, in Oxford also, as Kevin mentioned, I... Uh, Actually, when I was an undergraduate, I spent a summer placement at Moreland, what was then the Royal Radar Establishment. And at that point, I met uh, Cyril Hilsom, who is subsequently featured again in my life, as I'll tell you later. But I had the experience over the summer vacation of being left to my own devices. And the devices survived, most of them anyway. Um, so I then got a, uh, did my PhD, my DPhil, um, and within the, the three-year period, and moved on to East Lansing in Michigan, where I then terrorized Mike Thorpe, um, along with Colin Lambert, who's in the audience. And uh, to get, uh, we, uh, there was a small group of English people. We formed a nucleus, and uh, the Americans found us very weird, I think. Um, I had a, a Mexican friend who was there and had a, an Oxford accent, and that used to completely freak them out. Um, but uh, we had a tremendous time in East Lansing. And then I returned to the UK, to, to Darsbury Lab, where I uh, worked on uh, molecular dynamics simulation, computer simulation, again, with John Inglesfield, um, who's, who's at Cardiff and now retired, and then got a, a new blood lectureship, as they were called, and moved to the University of East Anglia in Norwich. So at this point, I will pick up the story as far as my uh, research goes. Now, this is a rather young Paul Coleman. <laughs> and thank you, Paul, for letting me borrow your slides. Um, so one thing I do, I have a sideline in inventing, in designing logos. That logo, I think, was my main contribution to the field. Right. So positrons are anti-electrons. So antimatter uh, is exciting stuff. If you put it together with ma matter, they annihilate to produce gamma rays. So if you put a positron with its antiparticle, which is the electron, it will annihilate to produce gamma rays. And the gamma rays that it produces will tell you a great deal about uh, a, a solid in which the positron is implanted. Now this really makes me feel quite nostalgic, actually. Um, this is Neil Chilton and James Baker, who are graduate students. Um, we were in working with Paul uh, at the time. And this is a slow positron beam. So what do I mean by slow positrons? 
Well, a false positron is one that's just been emitted from a radioactive source. And as you can see, a slow positron is linked, is, is moves slowly, and there's E plus. Now, the symbol for positron, let me just tell you, is E plus. So that's hence the link with the snail. But you're wondering, I know you're wondering, how do you slow these things down? Well, you implant them into a piece of metal. And as you can see, the positrons move through this piece of metal, doing what we call a random walk. In, that's what we call in the trade. And uh, sometimes they emerge. And when they emerge, they're captured. They're slow at this point. And you can then use them to study other solids and other surfaces. Now, I want to focus on this because a main uh, theme running through my talk is this idea of a random walk in which your particle, be it electron or, as we'll see later, seal pup, makes this random trajectory uh, through, the, through the material. And the way that you calculate that trajectory is by using random numbers. And so it was given the title of Monte Carlo simulation, Monte Carlo being named after the town Monte Carlo where all the gambling goes on. But I have to tell you that although getting grants seems a bit like gambling at times, there is no actual gambling involved in my work. So uh, what happened was I met Kelt, who's now my husband. Uh, he, we were in Finland at the time. And uh, Kelt, as all as the case with all the work I described, it's always someone else who does the work. I'm just the fortunate person being here um, uh, talking about it. But uh, uh, Kelt um, set up a program based on this Monte Carlo simulation to predict how the, if your positron enters at a certain angle, what probability they come out at, at, at different, uh, in different directions. And what I want to show you here is the, some graphs which, which show some ex experimental measurements with the, with the blobs, uh, the dark-colored and light-colored blobs. You see, I like to use scientific notation here. And uh, the important thing here is that the theory is that rather jaggedy line. The theory had no adjustable parameters, but agreed with experiment. And there was a famous occasion, which Paul will not thank me for reminding him of, when um, we had some experiments that differed from the Monte Carlo simulations. And Count told the graduate student who'd done the experiments, go and redo the experiments, because the experiments have been done wrong. They went and redid the experiments, found a different answer, and the answer agreed with our theory. So it was very, very satisfying. It doesn't happen very often, but it did happen on this occasion. And it was largely because Kelt had uh, done the work. So why, why do this? Well, why? Because uh, we have to find some way to amuse ourselves. Um, but Paul, we, we like to... One motivation is to produce more positrons, and this I cribbed entirely from Paul Coleman, so I take no credit for it whatsoever, except having the intelligence to borrow it from him. Um, but uh, here you see the, the British um, high-flux particle, high-energy, high high-flux positron beam. And uh, so Paul is still very active uh, in this area, and, uh, and I'm sure he can tell you um, about it at the reception um, afterwards. But I um, moved on. I moved actually into inorganic devices first. Uh, so inorganic semiconductor devices 
are simply bits of semiconductor that do whizzy things, as Stephen Fry indicated, things that people even can have a passion for. And so uh, I worked with John Jefferson, as Kevin mentioned, um, um, thanks to uh, being introduced to John through um, Dennis Scotter and Mike Kelly. And John and I had um, uh, a lot of graduate students and a lot of funding and a lot of fun uh, modeling inorganic semiconductor devices. Now, one device that I modeled is a blue light-emitting diode, which was work that was actually funded by uh, uh, a firm called Arima, linked with Professor Wang here, and I hope to pick up that work um, in uh, next September. But I haven't got time to tell you about that work because you'd be here for the rest of the evening, and believe you me, I think you all don't want to be here the rest of the evening. Um, so I want to talk more about the organic uh, devices because that's my more recent uh, work. I was in Australia, as one is, um, uh, at a conference, and I met this uh, uh, female scientist, a wonderful well, girl, I like to think, Tracy Fisher. And I mentioned I was working in organic devices, but I had this fascination for these bits of plastic, and I heard they did some strange things. And he said, oh, yes, yes, I'm working with Donald Bradley, and he's discovered them, and he, he needs someone to model them. So... Um, unbidden, I shot off to Sheffield and um, got, uh, Donald and I got some funding from the UK Energy, Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. Now, they, they fund most of the scientific research in the UK. Sharp um, Labs of Europe um, chipped in some, some, some money as, as well. So that got me um, kicked off in the area of organic devices. As Kevin mentioned, as a result of that, um, David Whitaker, who's at Sheffield now, um, put me in touch with Claire Foden from Cambridge Display Technology. Now, CDT are a spin-off firm from Sir Richard Friend's group at the Cavendish. And Sir Richard Friend and Donald Bradley uh, discovered organic electroluminescence. There's quite a nice story about that, which is, is one of these serendipitous discoveries. And um, so what happened was that it, they knew these things should... What happens with organic devices? As we'll see, you, you put a, a large battery across them and the, things, and the bit of plastic lights up. In those days, it had to be a large battery giving a fairly decent amount of power. Anyway, they put a large battery across it and they saw nothing. So they got pissed off and, uh, and, and went home. But they forgot to uh, switch off the connection. So they then switched off the light, and they saw this very, very faint glow in the dark. And that was the origin of this organic electroluminescence. I'll explain how it works in a moment, but it was very amusing that they actually beat some, got ahead of some Japanese people working in the same area as a result of this uh, serendipitous find. Well, um, uh, CDT... Um, um, along with Cyril Hilsom. Now, Cyril Hilsom was a chap I met at Malvern when I was an, undergra when I was an undergraduate um, doing this placement. And it struck me, um, some of you I know have read the book Dance to Music of Time by Anthony Pohl. And that um, is a book where you get a small group of people that keep bumping into each other. Now, research in science is very like a dance to music of time. I have to say, most of us don't get up to quite the antics they get up to in the Anthony Paul books. But, um, but you do really get this feeling that, that there's this kind of almost musical symphony going on, and, and there are people that you keep meeting and meeting again in different contexts. 
So anyway, Cyril um, was advisor to CDT, and um, so I came in contact with him through this Royal Society Fellowship. Had a tremendous time there, and part of the consequence of that was um, I met in San Francisco um, a group of people from Mons in Belgium. Now, they found me highly amusing because um, I, I speak French um, just uh, reasonably fluently. I, in other words, I speak it very fast, but at a GCSE level, so my vocabulary <laughs> is rather limited. And um, so David Beljean said that I was the only person he knew who could confuse people in two languages. So... But we got on like a house on fire, uh, with or without my French, and um, they we fought, and they bought me on one occasion in Avignon a very large beer, and I thought fine, I like beer, drank it, and then I said, right, we want you to be the coordinator of this <laughs> project. So I took up. I was too drunk by that stage to care. No, I wasn't really, but I, I did take up the invitation, and uh, we got this project off the ground, and. It involves people from Mons. It involves Richard Friend's group at the Cavendish. Uh, it involves a group from Denmark, which is kind of nice because Kelt, my husband, is from Denmark. It involves a group from Bologna, which is extremely nice because we've had some wonderful food there. And, uh, and it uh, involves some U.S. partners, including Jean-Luc Breda, who is the father of applying quantum chemistry to these organic devices. So looking at the organic devices at a microscopic level. I spend a lot of my time looking at them at a more, um, a slightly long, larger length scale. I'll come back to that point. Right. So, anyway, this, um, the, we persuaded the European Union to, 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 to fund this, uh, this project, and um, I negotiated my way through the pitfalls. One thing I will say about the um, people in Brussels, they are wonderful people, the project officers, and I've really formed quite good friendships with some of them, and I couldn't imagine doing that with uh, some of the UK funding councils. Um, <laughs> so so, so I, yeah, no, I really, really have had a very good experience with, with this uh, EU funding. Then we also, another nice aspect of it was we had this Chinese partner from Beijing uh, involved. Um, so now I'm going to show you some videos. I'll, I'll play this and then... Okay. Uh, that, the music, I should say, is by my oldest son, Torsten. He's in the front row. Um, along with all the music um, in this, this talk. So what these um, videos are supposed to show you is the many ways in which organic devices are going to disrupt our lives um, in the future. Um, they, the first slide video, which wasn't, I have to say wasn't quite as obvious as the second two, shows a window through which uh, it's initially daylight, and then as the daylight darkens into night, you see... The, the chap flicks the switch and it turns the window turns into a light panel. And so the point about the organic devices that I've been studying um, are that they both act as display devices and as solar cells. So as a display device, they give out light to form a display. And as a solar cell, they absorb light to generate power. So during the daytime, this window 
would act as a solar cell. It would absorb light. It would generate power, which would be stored in a battery, which could also be made of plastic. And then you, it, the power is used at night to produce a lovely white light uh, panel. Um, the other two uh, displays the, the demonstrate the fact that the sorry the other two animations demonstrate the fact that these materials because they're just bits of plastic are very flexible and so you can use them on clothing you can have uh, socks which glow in the dark and, I mean, anyway I leave the rest to your uh, imagination shall we say. Uh, but there's lots and lots of applications for this technology. But the main point about it, and this is a point that Richard Friend also emphasizes in his talks, is it's very cheap. Plastic is cheap. Okay? And so you should be able to make large area uh, plastic devices um, which cost nothing to make. Now, if you've got a plastic display device, then you can just make a, a, a roll-up uh, sheet which is content adjustable. So in other words, you can beam a wireless signal to it because organic devices also can be used for transistors. So you can have, for example, a roll-up newspaper that imitates the newspapers that we've already seen in the Hogwarts, in the Harry Potter movies. And this technology is really very close to, to being implemented. And it is all based on this um, OLED, this organic light-emitting diode um, uh, devices. And as you can see here, it, it, it is very, very flexible. But now um, I want to tell you a little bit of, of, of physics, just a tiny bit. Um, so the way that these work is that you inject electrons from, from one side of the device, you inject them in here, and they, the electrons do a random walk through the device. In the meantime, you inject holes. Now, what are holes? The best analogy for holes is you've got a line of cars at traffic lights. As the traffic lights go green, a car will move forward and it leaves a gap. And then another car moves forward and the gap moves backwards. So that the gap will move in the opposite direction to the line of traffic. And, in, and here, this is an illustration. We've got some traffic lights um, in Bath at the bottom of a very steep hill, Brasnocher Hill. And so what happens as the traffic lights, as the cars move forward, the gap moves back up the hill. Okay. So this is what holes do. Holes are particles that represent missing electrons, the, light, the gaps in the traffic line. And so, when, um, so you, can get by, you can get electrons exiting the device on this side, and in the process, they, these gap states get injected. These gap states are like positrons, okay? They are kind of anti-electrons. In other words, they have the same charge as, um, as an electron. Sorry, they have the same magnitude of charge as an electron, but the opposite sign. Now, opposite charges attract. So electron wandering through this organic material will find it's uh, an opposite charge, a hole, wandering through the organic material, and form a bound state that in the trade we call an exciton, that's excited state. And the exciton itself requires a, an existence of its own because these are very tightly bound, these, uh, these charges, and the exciton will wander freely through the device. And eventually, the electron falls into the empty state left by the hole, and in the process, it emits light. 
And you get the same physics, but in reverse for a photovoltaic device. So the point about photovoltaic devices is you illuminate them and you produce electricity. So we have a, um, a, part, a light, ray of light landing here. What the light energy does is it kicks an electron up from this band, from this energy level, to a higher energy level. So it's like kicking someone up from a basement level into the, onto the ground floor level. And then by kicking the electron up into this excited level, it leaves behind a gap state, which is a hole. The electron gets bound to this hole state to form an exciton. This exciton wanders through the device. Now, excitons are not easily plucked apart. So what you have to do is you have to have two different materials in your device. And at the interface between the two materials, the charges get enough energy to separate. So that is, is how uh, an organic photovoltaic device works. And you can all go home now. You've understood, you've understood it all. Right. Okay. This is um, a slide showing in slightly more detail uh, what I've just shown you. But uh, I want to focus a little bit more on the, on the underlying physics. So you've got your, your, your sun shining on this uh, piece of organic material. Notice it consists of two materials. One layer of uh, material which, in which the electrons move and the other layer in which the holes move. This exciton, this bound electron hole state, will meander through the device. And the way that it meanders through the device is a subject of a lot of research that I've been doing. Um, the, the, uh, the excitons, as we call them, move between these localized states, which we call chromophores. It will find its way to the interface between the electron and hole state, and the electrons and holes will then meander back to the electrodes. And so, in practice, you need to, the exciton to find an interface before it recombines and gives out light, because that's, you've then lost the, the energy from the uh, incoming solar radiation. So, what happens is you shine your light, you create this exciton, it finds an interface, and the electron holes separate, find their way to the electrodes. Right, so now... I'm going to show you how a solar cell should work. So this, what we want to see is seamless motion across a device. And here's an example of seamless motion. It's wonderful, isn't it? I think it's worth coming to talk actually just for, for that little video. I would like to acknowledge Kelp for, 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 for that. And there are plenty of soccer experts uh, in the audience, not including myself. Uh, but, okay, so that you can imagine, that's how a real solar cell should work with that kind of fluency. But in practice, a solar cell works more like this. I, I think, unfortunately I have to edit there. I would like to acknowledge uh, Gina and Nicola McGregor, who are in the audience, for telling me about this wonderful video. Now, what's happening, you can't see on the slightly blurred uh, version we had to take from YouTube, is that these people, you can just about sit here, they're wearing inverted binoculars. So therefore, the, the ball actually appears a lot smaller than it actually is. And so, so that's how they achieve this really hilarious effect. And if you 
pay me a lot of money or buy me a lot of drink or give me a grant or something like that. I'll uh, show you the whole, um, the whole video. It's very, I'll give you the reference. So, so that is how a solar cell works. So, okay, so as um, uh, sometimes funded research <laughs> in this area, my job is to uh, convert this performance into the uh, World Cup uh, level performance. So to do that, I'm going to enlist the help of Tidal Seal Pup, who's going to show how we model these things. Okay, so what Tidal was illustrating, I'm sure you will have all appreciated this point, is the electron hopping between different sites and then recombining at the end with a hole to give out um, energy. In this case, it's an error, but uh, in the case of an exciton, um, it could be light or it could be heat. But the point about charges in the solar cells, having generated the things. You really don't want to lose them through recombination. So that's what we're trying to, to minimize. And so um, this point, um, Sharp uh, Labs of Europe were, were, were funding me uh, um, with um, EPSRC. Um, and uh, I had this wonderful student, Pete Watkins. And anyway, Sharp said, can you tell us how the arrangement of the polymer chains dictates the performance of the solar cell. Now, when you have an industrial partner who's funding you, and they say, can you do this? You say, yeah. Right. So I said, yes. Remember, I learned how to blag when I was um, an, a Cheney engineering student. And uh, then I thought, how on earth do we do that? But chance came about. I do recall I worked in positron physics, and that gave me familiarity with surface physics. Surface physics, they've developed these techniques which allow you to do very sophisticated Monte Carlo simulations where you're looking not just at one type of particle, but which would, for example, be like tidal or seal pup, but you can include other types of particle, such as the fish. And you can introduce uh, recombination processes, such as tidal eating the fish. And you can do all this in this random walk Monte Carlo simulations. Anyway, what... Um, Pete and I did, and mostly Pete, um, was developed this method that for the first time, and I should say, has attracted a lot of attention and a lot of imitators from mere institutions like the Cavendish and Princeton, a few places like that, all imitators. Um, they, um, we showed that you can generate different types of, of solar cell. What you do is you have two bits of types of plastic mixed up in a solution. You put it on a spinning substrate and uh, if the, with the solvent, if the solvent evaporates quickly, the polymer, two types of polymer are very, mixed up very well together. And so you get, a, very, you get a, a solar cell which is made of these very small regions of the different materials. But if, on the other hand, you use a, a solvent that evaporates more slowly, uh, the polymer, uh, different types of polymer uh, uh, differentiate from each other in a process known as spinodal decomposition, and they, they separate out. And so you, you get a solar cell which is made of much larger regions of each uh, semiconductor. Anyway, what, uh, what we showed was that if you have a region like this, it, 
the excitron has a long way to travel to get to the interface between materials where it can separate. So you lose a lot of excitons because they never get to the interface in the first place. If you have a material which is made of these very fine, these very little blobs, you get, um, you get the excitons will find an interface quickly before they separate. But the charges then have to find a very tortuous path out of the device. And on the way, they're quite likely, as tidal lid when found a fish, to, to recombine and you lose them. So we have a kind of Goldilocks effect where you've got one thing wrong with, the, uh, with material being too coarse, another thing wrong with material being too fine. So you have to have a material which is just right, just as in Goldilocks and the three bears. And so we did show for the first time that it is possible to develop an optimum morphology. And uh, Kanaka, who, who uh, manufacture these solar cells, are, are talking to us about this work. So Robin, who unfortunately can't be here today, but he we applied these ideas to look at rather beautiful structures called gyroids, which seem to combine the advantages of both the coarse scale and fine scale morphologies in that you've got an interface that spreads throughout the whole device, but you've got a very easy path for the charges to get out. What's actually quite interesting is that these things didn't work all that well because uh, the field isn't pulling them apart very effectively. I don't want to get bogged down in physics, and I'm running... Um, uh, a bit low on time. So if anyone wants to ask me about that, I can chat to you endlessly uh, about gyroids. <laughs> okay, so I spent um, a lot of time um, looking at more microscopic behavior, um, particularly my partners in, in, in Mons, trying to combine the chemical structure, that was a chemical formula, um, with a physical structure, which is these planks that these polymer chains make. And using this... Uh, a combination of information to deduce the electronic properties. And uh, so, for example, you can model how an electron moves along uh, a chain, and this nice animation which I got from Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's for, so the, the deformed deformation travels along with the electron, what's called a polarum. So what happens is that the electron will travel along the chain, find a place where it can hop, and then travel along the chain and, and hop again. And this is work I've done with Jenny Nelson from, from Imperial. It was a very successful, enjoyable collaboration. And uh, the work was done by my two Greek uh, postdocs. Well, Stavros was the person who did most of it. So Doris has been also looking at excitons uh, moving in these systems. So again, because I'm going, running a bit low on time, I, I would just note that we showed some quite interesting results, which is you would expect ordered systems to, to transport the electrons most rapidly. But they don't. Only you've got to have the right kind of order. If you've got the wrong sort of order, they actually work much less well than a disordered material. And this was unexpected and, and quite a useful result. And we did get agreement uh, with experiment. Now I want to move on to excitons. I remember I already mentioned excitons. And so I discovered much to my amusement that Doctor Who had discovered excitons as well. So those of you health and safety experts, fear not. The real excitons are, are pretty harmless, the things. I think it's much more harmful as the uh, swear words I emit when they <laughs> isn't working. Um, but uh, no, excitons are fine, just fine. So now I want to move on to another type of solar cell that uses these ideas of these excitons. 
And these are the disensitized cells with which I've been working with Laurie Peter and Patrick Hamlin, again, with many drinks and much mirth and the occasional bit of science. And uh, these disensitized cells are rival technology to the organic cells. But me, being a theorist, I work quite happily in, in both. I'll just work for anyone who gives me money. Um, so um, they're, they're rather, produce these rather pretty uh, lantern shapes. And also, I'm a keen sailor in one of my other hobbies, and uh, they, you can use them in sails. So now, how do these things work? I had a, a student, Mike Cass, who's now working for CDT. Like I said, uh, a small group of people, and they keep reappearing in one's life. Mike is uh, now collaborating with him and Modicon. But anyway, Mike's parents were artists, and he designed this beautiful cartoon showing how these cells work. You've got these um, grains of titanium dioxide, and Dan, in a moment, will show you the, the, the real material. The grains are coated with a layer of dye. And the, um, the dye, what happens is that the dye um, absorbs the light. The electrons get transferred from the dye into titanium dioxide and then do a random walk to the electrode. In the meantime, you're left with a positively charged dye molecule and an electron rides piggyback on the lines in the electrolyte here um, to, to neutralize the dye molecule. So you get a, a circuit forming because you get light creating an exciton in the dye. Dye, this, uh, exciton separates to create an electron to turn dioxide. Dye molecule gets replenished. And so you can see that you've got a, a circuit here. Right, so now I'm going to hand over to Daniel, who's going to show you how the, uh, these cells um, are made. Hi, so I'm Daniel Anderson's PhD student. Uh, I also do side of theoretical physics too, but sometimes um, Petra bravely lets me into the chemistry lab, and um, I'm allowed to make some of these cells, which is very nice. So the, um, the titanium dioxide that Alison mentioned is this here. It's just um, white food coloring that you may have eaten today. And uh, when we make the cells, you, you take a bit of this, and it's extremely easy and cheap to make, and this is why they're so amazing. And you, uh, you'd smear it over a bit of conducting glass, so it's, it looks like glass, but it behaves like a metal and we bake it in the oven for a while. And what you get is this, uh, on the glass, you get a, a thin sponge-like structure. And um, as I mentioned, the dye, well, we, we plot the glass in a, a beaker of dye, and we let this dye soak into the sponge. And it goes from being a, a see-through color to looking um, purple or whatever color you like. But here, I've got a purple cell. And we make a sandwich with two bits of glass, and that's some liquid. And uh, I've connected this cell to a motor. If I shine the light, hopefully, the fan will spin. Yeah, there you have it. So here's one, a, a working device there. Okay. I'll, I'll hand back to others. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. I should say, Daniel, along with Cal, are the two people who combine both theory and experiment. My own abilities on the experimental side are useless, um, and so much so that... Um, when the headmistress at Ashford suggested, because I was good at science, I might want to become a doctor, my parents famously said, there's, no, there's enough suffering in the world without Alison becoming a doctor. <laughs> so that's why I'm a theoretical physicist. But as you know, I do have some engineering um, skills sometimes. Okay. So, so again, well, time is, uh, waits for no one. Um, so I want to, to move on. I've only got a few slides left now. You'll be glad to know. This is um, a blow-up micro-off, which provided by Petra, um, who are these, these very small grains of titanium dioxide. And then we have what we call macaroni titanium dioxide, which are the, these nanotubes. 
Um, I don't think it tastes like macaroni, as it happens. Uh, and um, Laurie and I have published many papers together, um, and uh, this was one that's been quite widely cited uh, now on the nanotubes. And so you can see that this stuff is really quite complicated. But I have a very good graduate student who showed me, this was Mike Cass, who's now at CUT, um, and uh, we had to study how the electrons find their way to the contacts through this um, complicated uh, porous film. And the problem is that, again, like, remember like tidal eating a fish and disappearing, the electrons here will combine with these iodide ions and disappear. So, so, so there'll be problems um, lurking for these electrons trying to find their way to the electrode. And this is what we're studying. But another an interesting aspect of disensitized cells is that there's no electric fields involved. They work purely by a process of diffusion, which is when um, you've got a high concentration of particles, and through purely random motion, they, the, the concentration evens out, so you get a uniform concentration. And diffusion is an example of the process of generating disorder, and the term we use for disorder in the trade is entropy. But rather than me telling you about entropy, Flanders and Swan can do it rather better. The first law of thermodynamics. That's entropy, man. <laughs> there we go. I could not have explained it better myself. I will acknowledge that Flanders and Swan composed the music and not Torsten on that one. Um, right. So a little bit more physics, and then I'll, I'll finish. Um, so so we, um, we don't just do Monte Carlo at a single length scale. That would be very boring. Uh, Mike Cass um, worked out how to look at it on different length scales, and so you could follow the trajectory of the electrons within each titanium dioxide grain, and then we could look at how it progressed between the different grains to produce a very nice uh, model of the electron transport in these materials. And he was... Uh, this work was picked up by Diego Martinez. And uh, so what we were doing was we were studying the diffusion length, which is simply um, how far on average an electron can go before it finds a fish or recombines. And uh, the point is that the diffusion length has to be greater than the width of this, the thickness of this titanium dioxide film. And there's a huge amount of controversy at the moment as to whether that is the case or not. But Michael Gretzel, who invented the disensitized cell, thinks that we're on the side of the angels because we've shown that the diffusion length is greater than the cell width. But this uh, controversy uh, rumbles on. But it is kind of nice to be hugged by the creator of the Gretzel cell, as has happened to, to me. Um, so now, the last uh, sort of dying moments of this talk um, represent a research which is anything but dying. It's our, in fact, uh, we were just discussing results this morning. Uh, this is run by a uh, group run by Dr. Petra Cameron, who's uh, here, and her students, uh, Anna and Tom, and Tom made the cell that uh, Dan demonstrated earlier. So what you do is um, you shine a laser beam knife, again to faff up in front of Petra, but bother me. Um, you have a, a source of light, a laser, and you shine it onto a prism. As you know, when you put a pencil in a, water, the, the pencil appears to bend, and so the light bends through the process of refraction. And then it, at the bottom, at that edge of the prism, it gets totally internally reflected. 
which means that the, the light energy gets um, reflected back out of the prism and into the detector. But at this point, some of the light will leak out into this film. This, you've got a gold film here, indicated by that gold layer. And on top of that, you've got your titanium dioxide film. And on top of that, you've got a bath of dye. As time goes on, the dye uh, leaks into the film, gets sucked up by the film. And this is important because we need to know how... When these cells are made, that's exactly what happens. The dye gets absorbed by the film. And, um, and as that happens, the refractive index of the film changes... Now, you get certain modes in the film. Now, we all know about modes because most of us have beaten a drum at some point or another, literally or metaphorically. And um, you know that when you beat a drum at exactly the right frequency, you suddenly get a very loud sound when you hit it. And so here, when you shine a light of exactly the right frequency on this film, you create well-defined modes. And you can track how the reflectance changes, when the reflectance will drop when a mode is excited. Anyway, if you do that, you get uh, Petra's group has got these measurements and say these are literally um, days old, these results. We've got this experimental curve here, and we've been playing around using a random walk for the dye molecules this time, and Eric Maluta. Now, Eric, I should say, has come here all the way from South Africa. We've got a much more exotic background than I have. He got a Ford Foundation scholarship to come here, which is very prestigious, so I'm very fortunate to, to have Eric here. But um, Eric's been here for some years, and then Dan has just started. I'm very fortunate, to, extremely fortunate to have them both. And we've been playing around, and we hope to explain how the dye gets uptook into the film. This is important because if we can understand these processes, it will make the cells much cheaper. And the whole point of these solar cells is that they are cheap and easy to make. So I want to finish now, and I think pretty much on time. Uh, with, I said I'd come back to the uh, detective uh, novel, and Kelp read it for me while we were skiing. And uh, I don't think he read it when he was skiing, actually at the time when he was skiing. Um, so it's got a lovely quote, and I'd like to thank Philippe Blondel for lending us the book. Anyway, yes, said Galvish, who's the detective features in it, we're so sated now with scientific wonders that it's a bit disconcerting when we find that technology can do everything except what we want it to. And I think that's a very, very good note on which to end. So I'd just like to acknowledge the many uh, sources of funding and... <laughs> okay. Thank you.